We do know through our oral histories in each Pueblo community about migrations and people moving across the landscape as we were instructed to do from the time of emergence. Only in our oral histories, as well as our various art forms, which textiles is definitely a large part of, our languages, our ceremonies and dances, all serve as uh, a record, a cultural record of these migrations in the different places that people settled and lived and then moved on. And so as various groups of people amalgamated and blended together, they have formed what we have come to know today as the Pueblos. This has definitely influenced trade and so just like today, how we see uh, certain villages that may specialize in pottery or basketry or leatherwork or textiles is still very much a part of how we believe it may have been long time ago, pre-contact times. This is Mesa Verde Voices, a podcast connecting modern people to the people who lived around Mesa Verde hundreds of years ago. I'm your host, Kayla Woodward. In this season, we're talking all about trade, and this is our last episode of the season. We've talked about items traded to be used for ceremony, we've talked about items used perhaps to transport other trade items, and we've talked about items that represent security and life. That voice we heard at the top of the episode, you'll likely remember from other episodes this season. My name is Louis Garcia. I am um, Tiwa and Pito Pueblo. I'm an educator and a traditional Pueblo weaver. And as Louis was saying, for thousands of years, Pueblo people have been migrating, building specialties, and using the resources that were readily available to them to develop relationships and communities centered around trade. Today, we're talking about the trade of textiles. Things like clothing and sandals, intricately woven from materials that were unique to specific regions of the Southwest. The tradition of weaving textiles dates back over a thousand years, back before the existence of the towns and alcoves at Mesa Verde, before the Great House communities at places like Chaco Canyon. Today we're talking about two specific textile trade items, cotton and a particular style of yucca sandal. We have a variety of, of kinds of woven goods that were used at Mesa Verde. This is Lori Webster. Okay, my name is Lori Webster, and I live in Mancos, Colorado, right next to Mesa Verde National Park. I am an archaeologist that specializes in perishable artifacts, such as textiles, baskets, and other woven items. And just like we've talked about in the previous episodes, the way to identify what was a trade item and what wasn't. If we look at what is locally available, that helps us understand what was made locally and what's traded in. At Mesa Verde in particular, we see a lot of turkey feather blankets, baskets, other kinds of woven goods. And we also see cotton textiles. As far as I know, there have been about six cotton blankets, at least a couple of cotton tunics or shirts, lots of small fragments of cotton textiles, cotton braid, sort of scraps of cotton cloth that have been worked into bags. So we have a, a number of cotton items that have been found here. However, despite all this presence of cotton, cotton doesn't grow at Mesa Verde. 
And we have absolutely no evidence for cotton seeds or any other cotton cultivation evidence on any of the sites that are up here in southwest Colorado. I personally think it's much more likely that most of these textiles are being traded in from places that were centers for cotton cultivation and weaving. And this is because, just like corn and cacao, cotton originally comes from much farther south. Cotton, first of all, it's a tropical plant, and so it was very well suited to southern Arizona when it spread up into the United States from Mexico. Over time, just like with corn, humans were selectively growing the cotton that could tolerate the not-so-tropical environment north of its homeland. But it really took a long time for humans to be able to modify that plant so it could be grown up here on the Colorado Plateau. But one thing it really likes is a high water table. There are places in the Southwest that seem to have been centers for cotton production. One of them is Canyon de Chez. If you visit Canyon de Chez National Monument down in Chinle, Arizona today, and you go out onto an overlook and look up into the canyon, you'll be able to see fruit trees, such as peach trees, as well as corn being grown by the Navajo people that live there today. Prehistorically, those were probably corn and cotton fields. There are sites in Canyon de Chez, such as Antelope House, that are just full of evidence of cotton production. This period of cotton cultivation lasted from about 1050 to 1300, so the same time period as the cliff dwellings at Mesa Verde. And so places like Canyon de Chez have that nice water table, really sandy soil that holds the moisture. It just, it's the perfect environment. You see tons of seeds. Seeds were so common in Canyon del Muerto that people were eating them as a source of oil in their diet. Other parts of northern Arizona seem to have had this perfect environment for this particular variety of cotton as well. We also see, I think, really good environment for cotton production along the San Juan River and down towards what today we know as Lake Powell, the canyon known as Glen Canyon. There's a lot of evidence that people were growing cotton down there. Again, it's nice and warm. It's um, got a high water table and the soil was suitable for cotton growing. Up here on Mesa Verde, it's really cold in the winter. We don't have any evidence at all from Mesa Verde for cotton seeds, cotton bowls, plant parts. We don't find the cotton lint in the soil in the sites. So we, it does not appear that people were growing it here or really processing the fiber here. So it seems like people in places like Canyon de Chez and Glen Canyon, places perfectly suited for cotton growing, are also harvesting it, spinning it, and weaving it into things like clothing items and bags, which were then traded. It's very obvious that people were specializing in cotton production, producing the fiber, and also weaving it into textiles. The most diverse weaving techniques and highly decorated textiles that we have on the Colorado Plateau are all coming from these sites where they're also growing the cotton. So it seems like where people are growing the fiber, they're also specializing in the production of the woven goods. And those are being traded to places such as Mesa Verde. If you've listened to season two of Mesa Verde Voices, you may remember an episode about the dioramas located in the Park Museum on Chapin Mesa. And we discussed a particular inaccuracy about these dioramas. The people represented in the scenes are mostly depicted without clothing or with very little clothing. The day I met with Lori, we were joined by some of the curation staff at Mesa Verde National Park down at the Visitor Center. Yeah, we've got the Museum curator Tara Travis helped us track down a photo of a particularly remarkable cotton shirt. 
This photo can be found in a book called The Cliff Dwellers of the Mesa Verde, written by the first archaeologist to do excavations at Mesa Verde. Yeah, there's a, a textile that Gustav Nordenschuld excavated in right around 1891, I believe. Uh, it was found at Mug House at Mesa Verde. Mug House is a small village located in an alcove on Wetherill Mesa. It's plain weave cotton, but it has a decorative band that goes across the center of it. Across the chest. That's woven in a technique called twill tapestry. It has a, a really interesting design. It's, it's basically a, a bisected square with a zigzag between them. That is the same kind of design that we also see on pottery. We, yeah. I've seen this on a, a, a Canyon de Chez artifact on a skirt along the side. We see it on Kiva murals. It's a design that's really common here in the 1200s. The technique is, is complicated enough that whoever wove it had to have some really good knowledge of weaving and, and be a very skilled weaver. In the pottery episode of this season, we talked about how it's possible to look at an object, like a piece of pottery, or in this case, a woven design, and copy what you see. But it's another thing to be able to mimic complex techniques. That skill would come from long-term training. We get the textiles with the same technique at Canyon de Chez and over in Navajo National Monument, a site called Keat Seal, and also over in Grand Gulch in Southern Utah. The fact that the same technique and design, that bisected square with the zigzag between them, is seen in woven items, on pottery, and on murals inside kivas, all in places associated with this prime cotton-growing land, suggests that the shirt was fully created near Canyon de Chez as well. The speculation is that that textile was probably traded up from northeastern Arizona. The trade and specialization of textiles is something that lives on today in the Pueblos, Hopi, and Zuni. And actually, the same geographic region of the Southwest is still known for its textile production. We see this today in the modern day period where m many of the textiles are coming from out west in the uh, Hopi um, villages, which has consistently been a textile producing community since prehistoric times. There were certain villages or places like the Hopi mesas that were sort of known as the best places for getting cotton textiles, and I suspect that goes way back in time. It doesn't seem quite like a coincidence that Hopi would be a particular group attributed to the production of textiles. Hopi now is near what we archaeologists call the Kayenta area, and that area seems to have been the place where people were growing a lot and weaving a lot of cotton textiles prehistorically. Now this is just on the Colorado Plateau. Once we get to southern, central and southern Arizona, there's other centers for weaving and cotton cultivation. But up here on the Colorado Plateau, it does seem to be northeastern Arizona seems to have been the place. It's fascinating. Trade is a fascinating topic because so much of it we can't prove scientifically, but we know how important trade was and still is prehistorically. And when we look at the ethnographic record, we have very good information about certain Pueblo communities that specialized in certain things and different Pueblo communities knowing where to get the things they wanted. There's a, a value in specialization because it makes your neighbors kind of economically dependent on you and it brings people together in that way through trade relationships. So that's certainly something that goes way back into the prehistoric past. And, and the need for cotton textiles at Mesa Verde 
would have necessitated that they had certain trading relationships with other communities so they could meet that need. Now, with cotton, it's fairly simple to identify it as a trade item. If there's no evidence of it being grown or processed at Mesa Verde, it must have come from somewhere else entirely. But what about something that's made from a material that's abundant all over? Generally speaking, there are certain fibers that we do see commonly utilized in the pre-contact period, which would have been yucca, which are kind of um, omnipresent throughout the Southwest. It gets a little trickier to sort out what might be a trade item and what might have been made locally. Uh, The most common item you see here are yucca sandals. Hundreds of yucca sandals have been found at Mesa Verde and in most other villages in the southwest. Which, if you've spent any time here, you can understand why this would be a necessity. You know, here in the southwest, there are lots of stickers, yucca, rattlesnakes, you name it, all kinds of critters out there that you may encounter. And with yucca plants growing everywhere, it was used for various purposes up at Mesa Verde. If you go up to Mesa Verde and walk around, you're going to see yucca everywhere. It's all over the place. There's the yucca baccata, which is the broadleaf yucca, and then also the narrowleaf yucca. And these yuccas were used for various purposes. Yucca sandals were made and used for a very long time. They actually go back about 2,000 years in the southwest. And then around the year 500, that's back when folks would have just begun to start settling down and farming, but they weren't building those big villages in the alcoves yet. They start to get really fancy with the designs on the bottom. And then we see sandals that just literally knock our socks off in terms of the technical expertise required. These are very labor-intensive. The fineness of the spinning of of this yucca. They involve processing yucca into a a very fine yarn and then weaving the sandals using about 14 different weave structures to create certain designs on one surface. With beautifully dyed colors and three-dimensional designs popping out on the soles of these sandals. A geometric raised tread on the bottom which just totally blows our mind in terms of the time investment into processing this material, which is extremely time-intensive and very, very um, taxing in terms of time and elbow grease, if you will. Archaeologists refer to these as twine sandals, and they're unlike most of those hundreds of sandals found in ancient villages across the Southwest. They're really extraordinary and probably the most complicated textiles uh, made in the Southwest until you get up to some of the really fancy cotton loom-woven textiles in late prehistory. So why are there these two different types of sandals? The, the plated yucca sandals, some of the more rudimentary, would have been used for agriculture, going out into the field, maybe traveling long distances, maybe even running to distant communities whereas some of the more processed and more fancy sandals could have been used for more ceremonial use or more specific purposes within the community and not so much to travel long distances or or anything like that. One theory about these treads is that people could have used them to sort of identify different cultural groups of people who were were wearing them because they weren't worn by everybody. 
in the Southwest. Like if you go south of the Mogollon Rim, nobody wore them. They're local to this area. And these fancy or twine sandals are so complicated that the question is, is it just certain communities that specialized in their production or did the knowledge about how to make them spread? It's difficult to really answer this question because it's difficult to know exactly where something like a pair of sandals is coming from because it's not possible to trace exactly where a plant like yucca was grown. It's not like pottery production where archaeologists use petrographic analysis to identify clay sources and they can say, oh, this pot was made here because of this clay. At this point, we can't say this yucca was grown here or this cotton was grown here. And similar to that ritual of drinking the cacao drink at Chaco, the tradition of weaving these sandals doesn't exist in the Pueblos today. Because we have no living tradition of sandals and sandal making within the Pueblos, we're all just kind of putting our heads together in terms of trying to figure out how or why um, there would have been so much time and effort put into to making something that you know, you're going to be walking on and wearing out eventually. My own feeling is that they are so complicated that there probably were communities that specialized in these sandals. And everyone around would say, oh, yeah, if I want to get one of these sandals, this is the little community I need to go to to get the one I want. But it does seem like a pretty good-sized population of people were making them, but they were all located in a certain region of the southwest. It's really focused in on this mountain range, the Chuska Mountains. That's the center The Chuska Mountains are a range in northeastern Arizona, bordered to the west by Canyon de Chez, and to the east is the valley that leads to Chaco Canyon. And then out from there, people were also using them. These really fancy, intricate sandals were made from about the year 500 to 700. Over time, they get simpler. You don't have as many weave structures. The designs get simpler. And these simpler sandals were made until about the 1200s. There's still some fancy stuff that's going on, but... At least early on, my feeling is that it's really these communities around the Chuskas that are really developing this really fancy style and are making a lot of these, and that some of them, when they show up in southwest Colorado, maybe they're being traded up. But it's really hard to say for sure. This reminded me of something that Bridget Ambler, curator for Canyons of the Ancients National Monument, said back in the first episode of this season. Pueblo people here show a high sense of aesthetic beauty that surrounded them every day, and we still see that in their descendants. It seems that folks were importing items to add beauty to their everyday life. For me, what I kind of reflect on is, you know, so long ago, There was no metal tools or technology, but people were sitting long hours processing this material, putting so much effort and artistry into these sandals, which many of them have the heels and the toes worn out of them, as to why someone would go through so much trouble to put such a beautiful design on the bottom of a sandal that would be worn off anyway. Just really kind of gives us a whole new appreciation for the work. Those are the things that as a Pueblo artist, I am really interested in looking at. And of course, just always in awe and inspired by the sheer artistry of these early artists. 
creating these amazing works of art that would be stepped on. To wrap up this season, I thought I would share that at the end of each of my interviews, I asked one final question. If there's one thing that you would want listeners of this podcast to know about trade in the Southwest, what would it be? And here's some of the responses I got. I think uh, a lot of visitors might have the impression that these were little self-sufficient communities and everybody in this little community made everything that was found there. These Mesa Verde inhabitants were a lot like you and I. These were complicated people, just like ourselves, who had connections far beyond where they lived at home. Life back then wasn't that different from the way it is now. We also have those trade relationships in our own lives or how we visit relatives and bring things back. And, and we go to visit certain people because it's different there and we want to be exposed to different things and maybe incorporate them back into our own lives. Sometimes we like things from other places to remind us that there's a world out there that's larger than ourselves. So when you see all those items in the museum, you shouldn't just presume that everything you see was made there, but think about how they might have been traded in, how people at Mesa Verde had personal relationships with people in other places, and how those goods would be traded back and forth. We are northern Mexico here, you know. We didn't have that international border back in the day. Again, this is Jonathan Till, curator at Edge of the Cedars State Park Museum in Blanding, Utah. So we're talking about traditions that span hundreds of years. And we only have so much space to present a narrative or story for us, this profound history here. So I, I think we tend to present a, uh, a nice, tidy picture and tie it off with a bow. But I encourage folks to understand that history and human society is a messy thing um, and is wonderfully messy. We still utilize these items and they still carry those metaphors with them. Again, this is Lyle Belenqua, Hopi archaeologist. Some of these traditions have carried on through time, whether it's textile weaving, so whether it's pottery, uh, whether it's jewelry making. You know, we didn't watch a video or read a manual, you know, a week ago to learn how to do these things. This is knowledge that has been passed down over, you know, thousands of generations. For the most part, Hopi and Pueblo culture, you learn hands-on. You learn by doing these things, by making mistakes and refining your skill over time. When somebody asks me, how is it that I'm related to ancient people of a thousand, two thousand years ago, one of the lines of evidence that we point to is this technological know-how, is that we've been able to maintain this set of knowledge for all of these years. And it's something that we're still practicing today. You know, that's, that's really a testament to the longevity and the depth of knowledge that Hopi and Pueblo people maintain. You know, when we look at these artifacts, it's eye candy. You know, we, we really enjoy looking at it because it's cool stuff. But the deeper meaning for us, you know, at least for me, is that we can point to it and say, well, we're still doing some of these things. We're modern day people just like everybody else, but we have a special connection, you know, that we're able to trace through thousands of generations to help show that, you know, our oral histories have validity, that they're not myths, they're not legends, they're not made up, that they have actual physical proof out there on the landscape. I want our visitors to know that this place is not a place of ruins. 
these sites are alive. They still have stories to tell. So it's important to respect and to walk lightly in these places because there were very important prayers and ceremonies that were laid down in these places for specific reasons, and many of which the sole purpose was to maintain a balance in the world. And when we visit these places with respect, then these, these prayers, in, in our belief, are still planted in those areas. So just like um, when you plant a flower garden, you take care of those places. And so respecting that and walking lightly in those areas allows those things to remain there and serve their purpose. This season, we've talked about the trade of items coming from California, the Sea of Cortez, the Gulf of Mexico, and throughout Mesoamerica. We've talked about the great efforts that the ancestral Pueblo people went to in order to bring home these incredible objects from places near and far away. Cacao, seashells, feathers, turquoise, pottery, shirts, sandals, and technologies. And beyond the flashy colors and beautiful works of art, we've talked about the importance of the relationships, partnerships, and the communities formed by these diverse people who built the Southwest. These greatly interconnected people who have passed down their cultures and traditions for thousands and thousands of years, and who continue this deep tradition of trade across Hopi, Zuni, the Pueblos, and present-day Mexico today. Thank you for listening to season three of Mesa Verde Voices. Over the next few months, we'll be working hard on production of season four, coming the fall of 2020. If you have any topics that you'd love to hear about, reach out to us. Shoot us a message on Instagram, Facebook, or through the contact page on our website, mesaverdevoices.org. Mesa Verde Voices is a production of KSJD Community Radio in Cortez, Colorado. It is created in collaboration with Mesa Verde National Park and funded by the Mesa Verde Museum Association with a matching grant from the National Park Service. Special thanks to Robert Dobry, Cindy Cooperwriter, Tara Travis, and Samuel Denman for your help and research for this episode. And a huge thanks to Lori Webster, Louis Garcia, Lyle Belenqua, and Bridget Ambler for sharing your stories with us. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kayla Woodward, with engineering help from Robert Woodward. Our music is by David Morella. For photos of that intricate cotton shirt from Mesa Verde, as well as photos of some of those fancy twined sandals, check us out on Instagram or Facebook, or visit our website, mesaverdevoices.org. Be sure to subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening.